if you are new to our church, we're in a series now called Be Rich. It's actually a spiritual growth campaign where we as a church are unleashing generosity here in our community. We are known as a generous church. We're known as a church that supports missionaries all over the world. And not only do we support missionaries, but we have planted churches in Brazil and Bolivia and uh, Mexico and other places around the world. And we support mission work, helping orphans and people in need all over the world. I'm grateful that our mission team to Haiti arrived home safely yesterday. They served for a week in a very remote part of uh, Haiti and did a wonderful job, Rafael Mejia, Dr. John Schultz, and Ryan Hartley. And they were able to share the gospel, uh, including with a voodoo priest. And uh, we're grateful that uh, they all came back, (laughs) you know, um, after having that experience. But we're also a church that's known for our work around this country, uh, here in North America. And we, we do a lot of good that maybe you don't know that goes on beyond Sunday morning. We support missionaries right here in North America. Our church even helped plant a church in Toronto, Canada. We sent some church members there for a couple of years in a row who helped plant a church and do street evangelism and community outreach and got, helped uh, Trinity Life Church get started. And then for two years, we sent them money every month just to help them get on their feet. Now they are doing so well, they are actually starting new churches in Canada and in the city of Toronto. And so you guys make all of that possible through your faithfulness and through your generosity. And so we started this message series last week, and we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 16, 17, and 18. And that's where we're going to be again today. I'm calling today's message Dollar Cost Living because we want to make every dollar count for the life that God's called us to live, a life of generosity and helpfulness. Now, we discovered a danger last week about our wealth, and that is what we call the migration of hope, that the more we have, the more tendency we have to transfer our hope from God to our things. And we start looking at our things to give us satisfaction and peace and happiness and security. But all of those things that we depend on are very transient. They're very fickle. They can be here today and gone tomorrow. We need to keep our hope in God. He's the only one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And why put your hope in your provisions when you can put your hope in your provider? And so last Sunday, we all made a declaration that said, I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. In fact, why don't we say it out loud again this morning? I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. That was the commitment that we made. And where did we get this idea of not trusting in riches, but in him who richly provides? Well, we find it here in this first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. Paul had led Timothy to the Lord. Paul uh, helped Timothy discern his call to become a pastor. And on one of the missionary journeys, Paul left Timothy in the city of Ephesus at a new church they had planted in Timothy was the pastor of this church. And so later, Paul leaves, but he writes a letter back to Timothy to give him some instructions concerning how to lead the church and what to preach and how to handle some of the problems the church was facing. And we call that letter that we have copies of 1 Timothy. There's a second letter we have a copy of. We call that 
2 Timothy. Isn't that amazing how that works? And so here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses, 16, or verses 17 and 18, we peer over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul as he writes some instructions to that young pastor. And he's particularly talking to him about how to teach people in his church who were rich. Because in that first century... Paul's probably writing this letter about A.D. 63. So there in this first century, this church in the city of Ephesus is comprised of poor people, some of them Jewish, some of them Gentile, some middle-class people, and even evidently some rich people according to first century standards. We've also discovered that if you live in America today, you're really considered rich by the rest of the world. If you make $48,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. And so everybody in Timothy's church in the first century, if they knew us today, they would say, these words are for you. You need to hear this. And so here's what Paul said to Timothy. He wrote in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So you see why we made that commitment. I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. It's because that's what God said to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Apostle Paul. That we are not to put our hope in the uncertainty of riches, but in God. Now, notice what Paul writes in verse 17. He says, teach them who are rich in this present age, as the English Standard Version translates it, or in this present world. That is a way Paul is reminding Timothy and us that we live in this present age, but there is a future age coming. We live in this present world, but there is another world coming. That is the world and the kingdom where we are with God forever. And if we're not careful living in this present age... We will allow the present age to mold us and to shape us more into its image rather than God's image. And we'll reflect the values of this present earthly kingdom more than we represent God's kingdom. In this present age, we're tempted to buy into that self-centered philosophy that I'm going to get all I can, can all I get, and sit on the can. It's for me and for no one else. And I'm going to look at people not thinking how can I do for them, but what can I get from them. And this present age, if we're not careful, will teach us to use people for our own personal gain. In fact, you name harm and heartache and evil, and it's typically because people are using other people for what they want rather than serving people for the other person's good. We don't want to live like this present age. We want to live like the coming age. We want to give people a glimpse of God's kingdom that is a selfless kingdom, a sacrificial kingdom, a kingdom that puts others ahead of himself. That's what our king did. That's what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He sacrificed himself to serve us. He did it for us, not for him. So he's reminding Timothy to remind his congregation, one day we're going to stand before God in that future age, and we're going to give an account of how we lived in this present age. So teach them in this present age two things. Command them not to be haughty and not to hope in the uncertainty of riches. 
Don't have this superior attitude thinking because you have more things than someone else that you are automatically better than someone else who has less than you. No, because without God, you wouldn't have anything. And don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches because they're going to let you down. And if all of your hope is in your stuff, when your stuff's gone, you're hopeless. But as long as you put your hope in God, no matter what happens to you in this present age, no matter how much you may have or how little you may have, you've got God. You've got what money cannot buy, and you've got what death cannot take away. You've got a relationship with God himself. So if those are the things we shouldn't do, what should we do? We should put our hope in God. And then he gets very specific of how people who have invested their hope in God act. Look at verse 18. They, talk about those rich people, talk about us, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The Apostle Paul says, God's not opposed to you having stuff. God richly supplies those things to you for your enjoyment. Enjoy them. But you will find the greatest enjoyment when you live not for yourself, but for the good of someone else. So he says, teach them to do good. If we are putting our hope in God, we will be known as people who go about doing good. And literally, to do good means to do something which is beneficial for another person. This isn't about me. It's not about what I get out of it. It's not about what other people now will think of me. Doing good, as Paul refers to it, is for the benefit of that other person. They have a need, and I have an ability, and because I love God and I love them, I'm going to do good for them. I'm going to try to meet that need. In fact, he says they are to do good, and then he elaborates on this, to be rich in good works. Not to be tight-fisted and stingy, not to do good works once in a while, but to be lavish in your good works, to be generous, to be plentifully supplied in your good works, that this is not a three-week campaign that your church puts on. Good works is something that you're known for day in and day out because it's a reflection that you're trusting in God who is himself good And we don't want to be average. We want to excel in good works. We want to be rich in good works. And then in case we haven't gotten the the idea yet, he continues, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. To be generous. He says, don't be stingy. Go ahead and just be generous. Be sacrificial in what you do. Sometimes we, we want to do good, but we only do it when it's convenient. Or we do it when it doesn't cost me anything. Or we do it when I don't have to sacrifice something else. We want to do good to a limit. But Paul says people who put their hope in God, not in their riches, are known for their generosity. That they are willing to sacrifice some things for themselves in order to lavishly do good for someone else. And I believe God's people ought to be the most generous people in the world. As a matter of fact, I believe that is typically true. So much of the good that takes place in this world comes from God's people. And we ought to be known for our generosity. And then just in case we're not quite convinced, he he adds one more caveat, one more little uh, shading 
uh, to this doing good. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to, what's the word? Share. Ready to share. Eager to share. Prepared to share. Have you ever heard around the church world the word fellowship? Unless you're watching Lord of the Rings, you don't usually hear that word much in our society, except in church. We even have buildings we call the fellowship hall. Hey, meet me in the fellowship hall. We'll have fellowship. Fellowship typically means food, right? You bring the chips, I'll bring the dips, and we will have fellowship. And to impede the fellowship means you forgot the chips. How are we going to have fellowship if you forgot the chips? But really the word fellowship, as it's translated in the Bible often, is a Greek word. It's the word koinonia, K-O-I-N-O-I-A, koinonia. And the word was used in secular Greek language to refer to partnership. It's really what the word means. It means partnership. It means a common sharing together. It was sometimes used of business partners. Business partners would go into business together and they would koinonia, they would partner, they would share in the risk of starting this business. We're going to put our capital on the line. If we're not successful, we lose it all. But we are going to partner together and we're going to share the risk. We're also going to share the responsibility. We're in this together. We're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to work hard. I remember asking my dad the first year after he had founded his own uh, construction company, I said, so what do you think after your first year? He said, well, I work harder, make less money, and couldn't be happier. You know, because he was putting his heart and his soul into it. And business partners not only share in the risk and the responsibilities, if things go well, they share in the rewards of their business. And so often in Greek culture, the word partnership Koinonia was used of business people. It was also used of husbands and wives. Can you think of a greater partnership than that? Where the two become one. And they share everything in life together. But the word was also used in the New Testament to speak of us as Christians. Having fellowship with God and having fellowship with one another. Now the reason I mention that is because the root word that is translated sharing... Ready to share in this verse is koinonia. Paul tells Timothy to tell rich people, be ready, be eager, be prepared to partner with people in need by sharing what you have with them. This is not communism where the government takes what you have. This is Christianity where out of a heart of love and gratitude, you give what you have to help another person. Just be ready to be generous. Be ready to share. That's so different than many people in our world. People who are so stingy and don't want to give. Reminds me of that story of a, of a lady who was organizing the city's annual charity fundraiser. And they were looking through their records of prominent business people in their little town. And she noticed there was this one guy who was very wealthy but never have given, has given to the charity. So she calls him. Sir... I've noticed in reviewing our records that even though you're the wealthiest man in our town, you have never given to the city's charitable fundraiser. And we just wanted to give you an opportunity to give this year. And he was very indignant 
the miser said, well, let me ask you a question. Does it show in your records that when my father died, left my mother penniless? Does it show in your records that I've got a sister who has had all kinds of problems in her life and can barely make ends meet? Does it show in your records that I've got a brother-in-law who went bankrupt when his business failed? And the lady now is so apologetic, sir, I'm sorry. No, our records don't show any of that. And then he said, well, if I don't give to them, what makes you think I'll give to you? (laughs) That's not how Christians ought to be, where we're stingy and miserly. We ought to be known as people who are generous. Now, often we think of rich people as being more generous than poor people. But studies have actually shown the most generous people are the people who have less. Now, generally speaking, rich people are not generous people. Rich people give larger dollars, but smaller percentages. The more we make, the more money we give, but it's a smaller percentage of our income. By the way, that's true of churches as well. You go to some of these big churches, and I'm not knocking big churches, but you go to some of the churches that that have a lot of money. Oh, we give this much money, and it's a big dollar amount. But if you could look at their budget, it's less than 1% of their income that they're giving away. And then you come to churches that are smaller, like this one. And every Sunday you put money in our offering plate, 12% of that automatically is given away to missionaries and charities. Then you add in everything else we do, we're giving maybe smaller dollars, but larger percentages. In fact... We give about 12 to 15% every year. That'll be about $200,000 every year to missions and charities. And then I started writing this morning just quickly what we do on top of that 12 to 15%. On top of that 12 to 15%, we minister to preschoolers and children and students and create environments where they can partner with their families and learn about Jesus. We help widows in our church and our community. We help orphans in Jacksonville and in Haiti. We help children in Ecuador. We also feed the hungry. We help ministries that shelter the homeless. We give money to help people who are addicted. We serve people who are struggling in their marriages. Our church funds a meal every month at Sandalwood for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for the high school students. Every week we're in 10 different nursing homes ministering to people who can no longer come to this church and doing Bible studies and taking communion. We have chemotherapy hats and blankets that are supplied by ladies in our church to multiple chemo treatment centers. And there are hospitals that every child in this city that is born receives a blanket and a hat and booties made by women in this church. We have a partnership with Mayport Elementary School. We have served veterans and active duty military personnel, including feeding them at some of our great um, uh, locations here in Jacksonville. Crisis counseling, we are called on as a church. When the El Faro sunk tragically with all hands on deck, the first people the United States Coast Guard called was Fort Caroline Baptist Church. And for a week, Pastor John Schultz and I were there ministering to those families. We have a professional counseling service that has helped thousands of people and families. We have an academy that is a five-star rated academy that ministers to 150 children. You don't have to be a Christian to come to our academy. We've got Muslims. We've got Hindus. We've got people of all backgrounds that bring their children here. And guess what? They learn about Jesus. 
at our academy. I could go on and on. I'm done. We don't have time for me to go on and on. That's what you do every day, every week, all over the world. And so much more. And so much more. So I want you to know that, that when we've been blessed, we've got to be careful that we don't substitute our big dollars for big percentages. We need God's more interested, I think, in our heart and our, and our percentage giving than just a flat dollar amount. Now, here's why I say that. In Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12, and I'll put these verses on the screen, verses 41 through 44, I think. Mark tells us, actually Peter told Mark, who wrote his gospel, Peter told Mark about a time when Jesus took them to the temple. And here's what the Bible says in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It says, and he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many people, many rich people, put in large sums. I don't know if you've noticed, but whenever we receive the offering here, I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm facing this way. I don't know who puts money in our offering buckets. I don't know who gives online. I don't know any of that. I've never looked, never asked. It's none of my business. To me, it's between you and God. But remember, Jesus was God in flesh, God in a bod. And so he went to the temple, and he said, I'm just going to watch. I'm going to watch as people give their money. And I think he was watching this morning, by the way, uh, as the offering buckets were placed <laughs> So he sits across the te- the, from the treasury, and he watches people putting money in the offering receptacles. Uh, we have a bucket in this service. We have an offering plate at the traditional service. But in the Jewish temple, at one of the courts um, in, in the, surrounding the temple, they had 13 boxes that had a trumpet-shaped opening. So it was wide at the top, and then it funneled down into a box. And some of those boxes were for general offerings to keep the temple and the ministries of the priest going. Other of those boxes were for designated reasons. So if you give to this, it's going to go to a certain cause. And you thought our church was the only one that did regular giving and then designated giving. No, that's, that's just the way it works. And so Jesus is watching people put money in. And he sees rich people, probably rich by looking at how they dressed and then the amount of money that they were putting in. And he saw that. Verse 42 And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now remember, Peter is telling this to Mark. Mark is writing to a Roman audience. So Mark knows most of the people in his Roman audience don't know what two mites were or a lepton were. So he says, those two would have made up a penny. They would have been the equivalent of a penny. That's what she gave. A poor widow came, put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Verse 43, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in Everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus said, boys, don't be fooled by people who can give large amounts. Look at what she gave. She gave everything. She gave 100% of what she had to live on. She sacrificed everything. Why could she do that? Because her hope is in God. God, I'm going to give you this. I'm trusting you to take care of me. 
Now, does that mean this morning that we should liquidate everything we have? No, that's not the point Jesus was making. The point was, when God prompts you, your question is not, how little can I give and still be good? When God prompts you, your question is, God, how much of what you've given me do you want me to give away? God, what percentage do you want me to give? What, what are you telling me? How many pennies out of 100 do you want me to give? God, what is it that you want me to do with your money that you've entrusted to me with? And Jesus said, I noticed that sacrificial giving. You see, it's not about equal gifts. We can't all write the same amount of money, the same amount of check. It's not about equal gifts. It's about equal sacrifice. And that sacrifice is different for a single mother taking care of her children. That sacrifice is different for a widow. That sacrifice is different for a family of five where both mom and dad are working. The sacrifice is different depending on your job or your age or your income level. All of that's different. It's not about equal gifts. It's equal sacrifice. And that's between you and God. I would encourage you, though, set a percentage of your time and money that you want to give to God and grow from there. Many of us in our church practice a tithe where we give 10% back to God through the church. And then over and above that, we give to special offerings. My family does that. And my children, who now have their own jobs, do that. We give 10% through the church every Sunday. And then we give to Be Rich over and above that. We give to the Building Fund over and above that. We give to the Children's Home over and above that. And, and we try to grow in our giving. Now, we believe that tithing, giving 10%, is a biblical thing. It's, some people say, well, it's Old Testament law. And I agree with that. It is codified in the law of Moses. But the first time you read about tithing is in the book of Genesis, 400 years before Moses, before the law was given. Of course, Jesus talked about tithing. He told the Pharisees, you guys tithe even the, 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 herbs, the herbs that you have. That's wonderful that you tithe even minutely those kind of things. But what about justice and mercy? You shouldn't have left that undone. Keep tithing, but work on your justice and mercy because you're lacking in that. And then the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus receives tithes. But you know what I believe, and this is controversial, I know among some of our church members, and oh, you shouldn't say this, Pastor Ricky, but I'm just going to tell you my biblical conviction. My biblical conviction is I don't want a Jew doing more under the law than I will do under God's grace, so I tithe. But I believe good Christians can disagree on that. I believe good Christians can disagree. But if your question is, how little can I give God? That's the wrong question. If your question is, God, what do you want me to do? I'm fine with that because he'll speak to you. He will lead you. He will guide you. In fact, Paul puts it this way. It's not in your notes. and I didn't have time to get it on the screens unless they surprise me. But 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, Paul put it this way. But I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Paul says, make up your mind to ask God, what do you want me to give? And when God speaks to your heart, you give it willingly, generally, cheerfully. And God will make sure you've got everything you need to do the good he wants you to do. And so I'm just pretty comfortable letting the Holy Spirit of God lead you. 
Now, one man, one man was at a banquet being honored by the school, but he had raised so much money for their endowment, they wanted to honor him. And when he was introduced by the MC, they said, we want you to welcome the biggest beggar in America. And, you know, here he comes, and he takes the stage, and he says, I want to I correct the perception of me. I've never begged anyone for anything. I'm not a beggar. I have, however, presented many opportunities to many people to help their fellow man. And as your pastor, I want you to hear me. I don't beg anyone. I don't manipulate. I don't cajole. I don't pressure. I don't guilt trip. But I give a lot of people a lot of opportunities to do good for their fellow man. And that's what I believe this Be Rich campaign is about. It's biblical. And in the end, it's about Jesus. You know why I give and my family gives and we encourage you to give and why this church practices what we preach. If we're going to ask you to give, why we take 12% or 15% and send it away rather than keeping it for ourselves. You know why we do that? Is because we serve a Savior. Like that widow who gave his all. She gave everything she had to live on. Our Savior gave his very life. For us. And because that's what Jesus did for me in making my forgiveness possible and free, I want to be more like him. I want to be more selfless, more sacrificial. I want to find ways I can leverage what I have that is good for the good of someone else. As for the, the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Paul says, Timothy, tell them, since you have more, do more and give more. You command them, since you have more, do more, give more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this reminder. And I pray in this moment that each one of us would examine our hearts and we would let you speak to us about what you want us to do. We recognize that compared to the majority of the people in the world, we have more. So help us to hear this call to do more. And maybe someone here realizes, I need to do more. I give financially, but I'm not serving anywhere. It's easier to just write a check and move on, and my time is my time. But I've heard God nudge my heart saying, you need to do more. And God, we've tried to make it easy for people to do good during this Be Rich campaign by saying, here's something to do. Here's how to do it. Here's when to do it. Here's where to do it. Here's what to do. But God, it could be something outside of this campaign that you're calling someone to do good for someone else. There could be others in this room who do good, but they realize they don't, they don't give more. In fact, they've, they've, they've substituted their service for sacrificial giving. But you've called us to do more and to give more. And so God, if your Holy Spirit is leading them to set a percentage this morning, to say, you know what, I'm going to set a percentage that I'm going to give first to God through the church. 
And then a percentage, if he blesses me, I'll give over and above that to things like her song or to a children's home or to wounded warrior or to some good cause. And God, I know you'll be honored and blessed in that. So Father, if you need us to do more, lead us. If you need us to give more, lead us. And we will be found faithful to follow. And we pray that you would do it to glorify yourself. Jesus told us, do your good works before men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God, it's not about us. It's about doing good so that people know there is a God who loves them and who is good and that this church is the body of Christ in this community trying to just live out the values of our Savior. But when it's all said and done, let people brag on Jesus. Let them brag on our Heavenly Father for anything good that has been done or will be done through the ministries of this church and through the members of this church as they scatter from this place today and this week. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.